Hi, I'm here with Grant Sputore, the director of I Am Mother, an upcoming film on Netflix. I watched the film yesterday, really liked it, but Grant, for our listeners, can you just give us a quick plot description? Yeah, sure. I Am Mother um, is set in an underground facility which is designed to repopulate the Earth after the extinction of mankind. It's like an existential insurance policy. And uh, it follows a young girl who is the first of a new generation of humans to be raised by a robot named Mother. Uh, and it's the story of their relationship, which is generally pretty damn good under the circumstances, until one day, unexplainably, Hilary Swank shows up <laughs> and has somehow managed to survive on the surface, which was meant to be, um, you know, not compatible with human life. So there's daughter doesn't quite know the whole truth, and it's sort of the story of her finding out what's who's telling the truth and who's lying and, you know, where she fits into this mess. And I think... When you start watching the movie, especially, the most kind of immediately attention-grabbing element is Mother herself, itself. Um, and, you know, I think when we see a movie like this and we see an element like Mother, who is this large, you know, human-sized robot, um, we assume that it's created by computers, but that wasn't the case here. No, from the outset, Michael Green and I, who came up with this, Michael wrote the screenplay, but we're friends of, you know, the last 10, 15 years, and uh, we came up with the story together, and from the very beginnings of those conversations we always knew we wanted to do mother practically it's both like a a budgetary thing because we knew how we were planning to make the film but also like we're children of 80s and 90s cinema so like you know we worship at the altar of robocop and predator and first terminator and jurassic park and all of stan winston's work which is you know most of those movies um which still hold up today like you go back and look at them now and you think oh my god they're incredible really um so we we get a kick out of that kind of filmmaking like it's for our own satisfaction as much as anything <laughs> um so what you had on set was this a, a person an actor um and inside this robotic uh armature yeah it's largely just a fancy bit of costume really like so 99 i haven't actually done the maths but it would be possible to work this out i would say like 99 percent of mother in the film is practical without augmentation like you know Weta workshop which is peter jackson and richard taylor's company out in wellington new zealand made the robot and they're about the only people on the planet that could um and uh, it looked so good that we didn't need to augment her at all um which yielded other benefits to the film because we did have some money set aside in the budget to do augmentation to mother with cg but we didn't need to use it so we could put that money elsewhere which only further enhanced the sort of scope and scale of the movie um the only times that we did do a CG mother was really when we couldn't risk the suit being damaged because it, was, it wasn't cheap. It was expensive, <laughs> but it was certainly cheaper than doing, uh, you know, hundreds, if not thousand plus shots in CG of mother. So we, um, uh, the only times that we recreated her digitally was when we couldn't afford to, to break the one and only suit we had. Because I would also imagine that gives you the freedom to, I mean, I'm, I, I think it's probably still complicated and difficult to have mother in the shots, but still, you don't have to maybe have, do that kind of math of like, okay, our CG budget is this, like we can only ha- like put mother in this much in the movie versus if it's there on set, then she's because she's a presence to the whole film. Totally, yeah, yeah, and we knew that. We knew that like it, there's only three characters in the film. One of them is a robot. Uh, there's going to be lots and lots of shots of mother, and um, we didn't have to do that calculation because we knew it wasn't one that would ever work in our favor. And like you're sort of suggesting, it's not a helpful thing when you're making the film to be like oh i need this shot to be 30 seconds shorter because we're not going to be able to afford for it to be this length in the edit you know um 
One of the other major pluses, which was certainly part of the rhetoric um, when we talked to investors about how we were planning on making the film, was about like having something practically on set, meaning that nobody needed to use their imagination. There was like a shared experience between the the DP and the cast, and most importantly, like the young kids that interact with with mother, like in those early scenes within the film, like they formed a real affection for the physical robot that was sitting right there with them. Um, so you know. I just loved the, the idea of being able to have that robot and see those dailies at the end of the day and go, oh my God, it's there, it's happening, like this might just work, you know? Like to, to have her move through spaces and display smoke and reflect the set as uh, as it actually was was immensely gratifying. Like I, I love practical filmmaking, but I'm, I'm not so naive to think that like incredible VFX aren't seamless these days. Like, nobody watches Caesar and Planet of the Apes and goes, mm, that monkey's a bit fake. You know, like, the, the CG now is so incredible. You absolutely could get as good a result as we did with a practical-suited mother using CG. It would just take so much more money and come with, like, enormous risk. Like, there are only a handful of companies that can do CG, like Caesar and um, Planet of the Apes, and ironically, it's another wetter company, but um, which probably tells you something about the... Um, excellence and standard you know that they hold themselves to down there in wellington but um yeah it just wasn't something that was ever on our radar like we we just really wanted mother to be real probably so i can have her standing in the foyer of my office <laughs> is, is she standing there now? <laughs> no she's actually going to be in the netflix foyer for okay. the next little bit but when they're done with her she's going to be in my in my office i think that seems only fair uh, so <laughs> talk a little bit about designing mother because i would think that as you said, and I think this is a movie that is very open about being influenced by particularly that sort of 70s, 80s, kind of yeah. slightly gritty, grungy yeah. generation of science fiction films. But one of the differences about making it in 2019 is that we have real robots, not to this level of sophistication, obviously, not but it seems yeah. like there's like a little bit more of a real world influence there. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, man, I could do a whole 30 minutes just talking about um, the design process of Mother because it was fascinating and complicated, as you can imagine. Um Oh, where to start on that? I mean, in terms of like what reference, like where the real world references are, yeah. like the biggest and most direct one is a, is a robot called Atlas from Boston Dynamics. And, and I've told this story a couple of times, but if your listeners haven't heard, heard me say it on some other publication, like the fascinating thing was that when we were doing two-dimensional drawings of Mother, we would pull up these clips of Atlas from Boston Dynamics, which is a Google-owned company, and they'd have this like pretty incredible robot wandering around like outside of their... Um, research facility and it would be sort of stumbling like a toddler taking its first steps but it was still pretty mind-blowing like it's an autonomous robot walking on its own finding its balance navigating the world pretty incredible um, and then by the time that mother was fully designed I sort of set that stuff aside let Weta do their thing in terms of building her I had other stuff that was preoccupying my mind in terms of just getting the film up and running and cast and all that sort of stuff and by the time we were on set shooting the film Luke, the project supervisor at um, Weta, who also wore the robot suit, came over and was like, dude, have you seen this new video that just came out from Boston Boston Dynamics? And it was the same robot doing (laughs) backflips. So, like, it had progressed. Like, in the time it took us to make a non-functioning robot costume from being, like, a toddler to being a gymnast. You know, it was pretty mind-blowing how quickly that stuff's developing. Um, So, Boston Dynamics Atlas was a big thing. Um, But the biggest challenge for us, you know, knowing that we were going to do Mother practically was ensuring that uh, the audience could suspend their disbelief. And there's a huge logistical challenge in that, like, we had to have a person inside this suit, but we didn't want the audience to think that it was a person in a piece of Mm -hmm. costume, right? So there are lots of choices about elevating Mother's 
head up over the top of Luke's head, bringing mother's. One of the biggest things was bringing mother's face forward off Luke's face and then making it narrower than Luke's face. So um, when you look at mother in a close up, her face is narrower than a human's head, which is like a big part of why people assume that there's not a person in there. But it's a bit of an optical illusion, really, because the suit actually widens out to accommodate Luke's head in the back. But in something like a three-quarter close-up, you're shooting off the front edge of that thing. You can't see that it gets wider as it goes backwards. So it was a bit of a trick. And there's definitely references to Alien as well. Like we looked at all the great um, suit costume, like incredible suit performances like in history, like Robocop, the Jurassic Park dinosaurs, and of course uh, Giga's Alien and um, Ridley Scott's Alien. Um, and we stole the best bits from all of them, you know, uh, and, and sort of smashed them together. One of the other things that, uh, that was a bit of a turning point was using dazzle camouflage kind of concepts, like using a lot of high contrast, like black and white, um, shapes on mother, but making them a little bit unpredictable and using them to sort of narrow her down. So the front of mother's thighs are bright white in, in quite a narrow panel. And then they go off to darker shades as they sort of go back to accommodate the full thickness of Luke's thighs. So... Um, again, it's sort of your eyes pulled to the bright bit at the front and then everything sort of disappears into shadow in the background. That was definitely my experience watching the movie, um, knowing that it was a, a practical effect, that it was a person in a suit. I sort of forgot it right away. In the, I think the only other uh, pra- you know, person in suit that I can think of like that is, is the alien. And, yeah. Um, because that's one where, again, where I found out and you see the shots. You know, the behind-the-scenes photos yeah. of the actor in the scene, you're like, that is insane. And yeah. I had, there was a similar effect here where I just... I didn't see the person in the suit at all. Oh, that's great. I mean, Alien is fantastic. It's like a big influence of mine in this film and probably will continue to be in anything I do afterwards. But the the it benefits from shadow darkness and not a lot of wide shots, you know. Um, whereas Mother, I knew we were going to see in more light than that um, and in a greater variety of kind of coverage. So it was certainly the thing that was keeping me up at night was whether we were <laughs> going to pull this thing off. Um, Robocop was another big reference but Robocop has the benefit of like you know that it's meant to be a, a human person inside that thing but just for the design choices that go into that are incredible and the great thing is that the, the guys at Weta who we worked with on the suit and were as passionate about making this as fantastic as we were um, was in, were inspired by all the same stuff they got into the film industry for the same reasons and they were desperate to, to be a part of a story like this so we could have a um, conversations and have a shared language, like, and the same affection for these characters. You know, we talked a lot about C-3PO and, like, what works and doesn't work about C-3PO um, from an outside perspective. Like, within the Star Wars universe, it's incredible and it's perfect. Um, but we couldn't have C-3PO in our film. But you can still look at and learn, like, from the choices that they made. And Luke would say that, like, all of these robots have a squishy mid-torso. It's just the way that humans... Humans are just the big squishy sack of, uh, of goo, basically, hanging <laughs> off a skeleton. <laughs> Which is the exact opposite of like how these robots work, right? So the big problem when you're making a robot suit is that your torso twists and turns in a way that it's hard to replicate in like from an outside shell point of view. So C-3PO has that soft torso section, which has just a couple of wires dangling down it. Robocop has that black rubberized section in the middle. And so we were trying to find our own take on that. And again, being inspired by... Um, what Boston Dynamics had done with a lot of like um, plasticized sheathing and stuff like that. The middle section of Mother has this outer plastic wrap, which we justified as being like keeping kids out of the moving joints and things like that. <laughs> but there are lots of choices about trying to hide um, depth into those things. So there are these red cables that come sort of out and look like they dive straight back into Mother's Torso, but of course they just stop. And Mother's Torso's got like a, a, um, a cylinder that looks like it runs all the way through, but it's just got caps on either end. 
and then through the middle is a big section cut out for Luke's innards. So taking a step back from the specific design design decisions, I'm curious, at the beginning of the project, it, it sounds like you were also invi- involved in, in shaping the story yeah. as well. Um, that how much do you, and, and you're, you know, um, that your sort of frame of reference is probably similar to the frame of reference to a lot of people of yeah. roughly our age, of, yeah. you know, inter- into these kinds of films, and, and the sort of idea of, again, without giving anything away, that of a robot that is at least to some extent kind of sinister and and, and, and a source of, of fear and intimidation, in the case obviously showing a different side as well, is, is this sort of very well-trod ground. And, and clearly you've already spent a lot of time thinking about what are the past robots, how do we make yeah. this different? I'm curious, like, from a story perspective, how do you say, well... We're going, obviously, you know, we're going to wear our influences on our sleeves, but we're going to do something new. What made you feel comfortable that it wasn't going to feel like just yeah. another robot? Yeah, yeah, I'll say a couple of different things that's springboarding off that. The one thing that I think differentiates Mother from every other robot that we've seen on film is that, like, she's motivated by love. You know, how that manifests and, and, and what she thinks is right or wrong sort of becomes the subject of the film. But, um, you know, like Terminator doesn't much care for humanity, you know, whereas Mother certainly loves humans um and wants to do what's right for them like there are reveals throughout the film about like you know what how and maybe i should circle away from all of that (laughs) it's such a spoiler thing. there there are surprises in the film yeah about mother we can say yeah that's right i mean i certainly love people to go into the, the film with an open mind about mother and kind of wishing the best for her because she certainly wishes the best for us um the you know, the, you mentioned that like it's well trodden ground. It's interesting. All of the films that you think are about robots are largely about androids. Mm. Um, so, like Blade Runner, for instance, um, is a seminal kind of contribution to the sci-fi genre, and many people would call it about robots. But really, it's about androids, which sounds like semantics, but uh, it's significant from two different points of view. Like one, android movies tend to sort of focus on the question of like, do robots have feelings? Do androids dream of electric sheep? You know, like are they like us? Where do you draw the line between robots and humans? I feel like that question has been done, like has absolutely been done. And, and our film was not about that at all, uh, at least not in my estimation. Um, so we were coming at it from, from fresh territory from that point of view, but also like just to focus on the Android thing again for a second, the reason that Android films are far more com- common is because they're cheaper. Like you just, <laughs> you just cast an actor and you say, yeah, but their insides are robotic. You do one shot, like even an alien, like Bishop is like, a robot, because when he gets smashed apart, you say, oh, mm-hmm. wait, look, he's a robot on the inside. But 95% of the time, it's just Ian Holm looking like Ian Holm. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so you, that was easier for filmmakers to, to explore that territory. In terms of, like, robots on film, and I might draw a blank and miss them, there aren't actually that many that are that interesting. Um, and that was in the uh, in the very premise of this idea. Like, from the very first conversations that Michael and I had about what we wanted to put on film, like at the top of the list was the the sort of image of a hard surface robot holding a, a small child and and using that to become a, a framework for a discussion around like our um, symbiotic relationship with machines and that like we created them we need them like our entire society is like underpinned by technology like we're inextricably linked with machines so like it was more of a chance to explore our relationship with technology, basically, and and highlighting the contrast. So, like, in in uh, separate to, like, oh, are we similar to robots? Which is fascinating, but it has been totally done. Like, are they the same as us? Like, at what point does a, ro- a synthetic life become a real life? Like, we don't are interested in any of those questions. Like, we're saying robots are robots, humans are humans. They're both really interesting. They're both really different. They're both messy and complicated. But how do we 
get along? How do we work together and how do we have a positive relationship, basically, is more the questions that this film's interested in. So listening to you talk about that, that also reminds me of um, an interview I got to do with Alex Garland, the writer and director oh, of Ex Machina. And this was at this point where, um, you know, Age of Ultron, Ex Machina, Chappie, all very, very different films yeah. were coming out. But it felt like there was sort of something in the air about these sort of, uh, you know, evil robot films, to put it very simplistically. Yeah. And uh, one of the things he said was that that the idea that, that we it's less about robots per se and more like you were saying about our relationship with technology in general, whether that's anxiety about Facebook or Google and, and just the way that technology permeates our lives and robots are sort of just a good storytelling mechanism to deal with that because then you actually have a character rather than just, you know, a screen or whatever. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's both certainly for, for my film. I mean, I think the reason that you're seeing it more and more in, in pop culture and storytelling is because like it's becoming more and more real. Like, reading the headlines, Google Duplex, for those who want to go away and have some nightmares, search what Google Duplex is and listen to some clips from Google Duplex and and ask yourself how that isn't going to completely change our society. And likewise, if you do any research into artificial intelligence and what that might really mean when those machines wake up, for the want of a better term, like, that's going to completely change our society. So, like, now is a pertinent time to be investigating these big questions you know like there's a whole subset of philosophy that's to do with like um moral machines and can you teach machines morality and like is that important and what does that look like and some of that stuff's woven into our film i would suggest it's very important because as these things become moral agents that are able to navigate the world and make choices like how they prioritize things becomes incredibly important and like having those things um in service of uh, an underlying morality is like very very important because it might be our existence that's sort of wrapped up in those decisions um so you know all of this stuff i find really fascinating um and in terms of this film itself like you know is it a metaphor i i certainly in many conversations i've explained to people that like it, it the whole thing is largely an allegory just in in terms of a child's relationship with their parent like it's it's about daughter i leave characters only known as daughter um how she defines herself independent from her upbringing. Like, how does she decide what kind of person she's going to be and how she defines right from wrong, like, separate to what she might have just been told is right and what's wrong. Um, and in that way, it's, like, similar to any child, like, going through a teenage rebellious period, kind of working out who they are. Um, so it functions on that level, and that's how, like, how it gets under your skin, I think, and, like, gets into your heart. But it also hopefully gets into people's brain because this is not really science fiction for much longer. Like it's like it's borderline science fact. Um, well, fact strong, but it's certainly like it's it's becoming a more realistic proposition and like problem for people to go like, okay, yeah, how do what does AI look like? How do we like have a healthy relationship with these things that are real? They're in labs right now, and like will only grow stronger and smarter quickly just like atlas like we're stumbling around mm-hmm. in the forest a year ago <laughs> now it's doing backflips like there's there's an intellectual equivalent of that sitting in a black box somewhere do you so because i think there is this larger conversation about what this future looks like and and there are folks like elon musk who and i think a lot of this revolves specifically around ai yeah. um which is a component of the film and there's sort of these certain people who just think okay like this is really scary you know, in X number of years, robots will just run the world and, and humanity is going to be obsolete or, yeah. you know, whatever. Then that's sort of one scenario. One scenario is maybe more where it's bad, but it's not bad because robots take over, but just in the sense they become a part of our life and, and in ways that we can't necessarily anticipate. And then there are people who are very optimistic about that yeah. future. 
having done it sounds like a lot of thinking and research into this, where do you fall? Uh, I think it's a spectrum of possibilities. And like as much as I've read books and articles and listened to podcasts and that sort of stuff, I've not been on the front lines talking to any of these guys that are actually designing these systems. Um, uh, you know, but I've certainly, you know, heard the perspectives of people that are closer to the action than I am and they're, and they're worried. Uh, I think it's, we're right to be a little worried. Like, and, and I think a key component of how we take that worry away is, is sort of ensuring that there's some sort of moral framework that underpins how these machines make decisions. But how do you code that? Like, what does that look like? Um, the other big part of all of this is machine learning is what drives most of like the AI breakthroughs that we're seeing. And that's like an, an unguided process that human hands don't really touch. Like the machines kind of make their own pathway to their end result. So that's slightly terrifying in its own way as well. I, I look, I, you know, it totally runs from, you know, AI. Humanity faces so many problems right now, anyway, right? Like I, I throw myself in the camp of like AI is totally going to either save us or destroy us, basically. <laughs> you know, but which where I fall on that spectrum depends on the day and what I've just read most recently. I think, but I think the most important thing is that we're talking about it and that people are aware of it and that maybe some Google AI developer. Um, goes home on Friday night and watches Mother and goes, oh, maybe I should think about this a little more carefully. Or they watch Ex Machina or Age of Ultron or any of that sort of stuff. Like, I think that it's a good thing that these questions are out there in the culture and, you know, as much as possible, we can hopefully sway the kind of real-world implications of, like, what this technology might have when it comes to fruition. And that we're talking about it in a way is it about this is these are choices that people are making right now as opposed yeah. to just this, you know, predetermined you know, future of what is is or isn't going to happen with it. Totally. I mean, the difference between, like, Terminator and, and Mother, and there are many, but at least in terms of, like, how it comes out into the world. Like, when James Cameron wrote the first Terminator, that was, like, extreme science fiction. Like, the sort of fears about um, robots and the machines are probably more connected to computers coming into the workplace and people losing their jobs to... And, like, automation coming into factory lines and things like that, and people losing their jobs to dumb machines. Um, you know, it's a little more scary when people start losing their jobs to smart machines. And, like, as those machines get smarter, like, is all of humanity put out of a job, essentially. Right. Um, so changing subjects slightly, as I believe this is your first feature yeah. film. Yeah. Um, so you're putting Mother out into the world right now. Um, yeah. Can you say anything about what comes next for you? Oh, under so many NDAs. No, <laughs> I, uh, no there's lots of exciting things happening. I mean, I've, this film's had a bit of a blessed run, like going through Sundance before ultimately coming out on Netflix. So that sort of got the ball rolling um, ahead of the film really being discovered by a larger, larger audience. So like I've been taking some fairly um, pinch yourself kind of meetings and hoping that those things turn into movies. But it's such a kind of wing and a prayer industry, you know. You just keep grinding and work as hard as you can and try and bring those impossible dreams into the real world, hopefully. And um, so I believe the chronology was that you premiered at Sundance and then it got picked up by Netflix. Is yes. that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the uh, something that a lot of people probably, I'm, I'm acutely aware of this, um, you know, I think Netflix's reach is so massive. It goes into so many homes. And most of those people have no in interest or connection with the actual kind of film industry that drives how that content gets created and how it ends up on Netflix. But the origins of this film is a little Australian film that could could easily be lost in that shuffle. And uh, I'd like it, that info to be out there, at least for those people that do care about the stories of films and filmmakers and how things got made, like for there to be some awareness for those people that want to find those stories that, yeah, we made this film in Adelaide, um, which is a small town in South Australia, you know, that um, doesn't make films like this. Australia doesn't generally make films like this. So like 
I'm incredibly proud that we were able to make this movie with the resources that we had, which wasn't that much. It was an independent film. Um, and have it turn out as well as it has and have Netflix recognize its quality and that it could appeal to their incredible and massive audience. Um, I wonder if there's like, because once something comes onto Netflix, there's an element of people can watch it on their phones. They can, you know, then I imagine that at some point I may be, watch, you know, riding on the subway. It's, do you, Is there any sort of tension for you of like, I imagine you hoped to see this, you know, on a, you know, big screen with like amazing sound and everything and, and sort of putting it out into the world that you have to sort of let go of a, a, some of those expectations. Look, I mean, I, it's heartening that the Netflix tells me from their viewership data, whatever, like the vast majority of, of how people watch Netflix is at home on their big screen TV. And that's my experience of it as well. You know, like when I think about my film getting watched in people's homes, I assume they're watching them in similar circumstances to what, how I watch it. And I think that's a great way to do it. Like that's a that's an incredible um way for an audience to find your film is like on on a big screen in the comfort of their own home they can take a chance on a piece of content that they might not have been aware of you know until that very night um i do get a little nervous about like people watching it on their phones and stuff like that but the the story hopefully cuts through regardless um that's certainly not how i'd ever watch a movie so that kind of psychology doesn't even really make sense to me like i can't imagine like when you pull out a (laughs) phone and you go you know i'm gonna see you for two hours and hold this in my hands for two hours it's like man if you've got two hours just open a laptop at least um but people do it and and like if that's how those people are going to watch content that's how they're going to watch content i guess like i can't change change that so um i just hope people find the story and get as much out of it as they as they can you know at whatever scale resolution they choose to watch it all right well grant spittori thank you very much for your time everyone go watch i am mother hopefully on an amazing big screen that's right. right thank you thank you mate 